Well, good morning. It is really good to be back in this room. And I don't know um, where you're at. I'm assuming you're in a home, and it means the world to me that you would let me get to come into your home and um, be with you together in this moment, as much as we would long to be together in this space. But I was able to participate in the worship that you just experienced, and it was my prayer as I was sitting over there that the same anointing, the same presence of Jesus that was so tangible in the sincerity and the authenticity of this time of worship that we experience in this room, it was my prayer that in that same way you were able to experience the presence of Jesus there, um, whether you're by yourself or gathered with family or a friend, but we know that the Holy Spirit can transcend um, space and time. And it's the Holy Spirit that has made us family together. And that's why we miss each other when we're not together. Um, but it's the Holy Spirit that is in us that makes us feel and keeps us close together even when we're apart. So until the day that we get to regather together back um, in worship, we know that the Holy Spirit is maintaining that unity, that oneness together that we share in Jesus. And so um, to be back in this space feels like home. Um, I have a privilege of being in a lot of different locations in my new role, but there really is something um, right and life-giving about getting to be back here. And I'm so thankful for Pastor Brad um, and the team uh, that allowed me the opportunity to come back. And I pray for you daily. And in my conversations with Pastor Brad, I hear in him the heart of love and um, pastoral commitment and care um, for all of you, for those who call this their home, but a heart for the city and a heart for the world. That video that we got to watch a minute ago um, is really just a statement. It's a profound statement of God's gracious blessing and provision in a place through a people over a long period of time that has added up literally, and I don't say this for anything more than stating a fact, it's literally tens of millions of dollars over the last four, almost five decades that have gone out of this place in ministry generosity that others might know and experience the love of Jesus. So this morning, I get to be part of starting the Advent series. And you probably know this, but the word Advent is a Latin word, comes from a Latin word, Adventus, which really spoke to a period of time when a king or an emperor would make a visit to a city or a location and in preparation for the king's arrival, they would use the term adventus, that the, the emperor is arriving, that the emperor is coming. So they would make themselves ready. They would, they would want everything to be just right for the arrival of the king. And so in light of the truth of Christmas, that we have the arrival of the king, so to speak, the early church made a decision that there should be a season of preparation for the coming of the king, and so they called it Advent. Um, Use that word, the arrival, the coming of the king. And so they had to pick a date. They had to pick a time, and so I don't want to ruin it for anybody, but we really don't know for sure when Jesus was born. We know when he died and rose again for sure, but nobody really knows when he was born. So we do know that we have like a, maybe a one in 365 chance that it's right. But they, they landed on a day. And they landed on December 25th for this reason. Because at the time, it was this part, it's part of the winter solstice, which would have been 
at the time, um, one of the shortest days of the year, potentially one of the coldest, um, one of the darkest times, right before the, the breaking of the new season and the new dawn and the new day. And so they picked the 25th very strategically because it was symbolic to the darkness that permeated things, the, the sense of despair that comes with, will the light ever get here? Will we ever get through this season of cold and, and never-ending darkness? And so when we think of the first Christmas, um, it really embodies that kind of scenario because the Bible tells us it was in the days of Herod that Jesus was born. And that's more than just marking a moment in time in human history, but it really is speaking to its a characterization or a, almost a metaphor for the oppressive brutality, limitations, the darkness that was characterized by Herod's leadership. And so it was very much a dark time. It was very much a, a, a cold time. And so you could just say for Israel at large, it was a really tough time, hundreds of years of oppression. But for Mary and Joseph personally, it was a, it was a really a a difficult time. Could you imagine being in the last weeks of pregnancy and your husband says, we're going to go on a two-day donkey trip? And, uh, and she says, well, where are we going? And we're going to go to the DMV. That, that you're going to go on a two-day donkey trip to go to the DMV. So how exciting is that? that? That on a national scale, it's very hopeless, but on a personal level, there's all this anxiousness, there's this uncertainty, there's this anxiety, there's this stress. So in the context of the first Christmas, there was this longing, this waiting. Will the Messiah ever come? Will, will things ever be made right? Will righteousness ever prevail? Will justice ever be realized? And so it had almost taken so long, hundreds of years of waiting, hundreds and hundreds of years of silence, no prophets speaking that they began to question and maybe even wonder if this was ever going to happen. And so the question, when? When is this gonna happen? When will things be made right? And people have that question today in our moment in time, not comparing hardship per hardship and trying to take our scenario and say it's worse than other places, but it's an unusual time and people have that question, when? When, when, when are we gonna get a vaccine? When can we stop social distancing and having to wear masks? When can we gather back together in fellowship and in worship? And when can we go on a vacation again? And, and we ask the question, when? We don't like waiting. Um, we get tired. It's easy to feel despair circumstantially, let alone when we know the very real issues of people potentially even getting sick and dying and other things that are going on. A couple of weeks ago, my wife and I were at a restaurant in they gave us that little pager that you get when you have to wait for your outdoor table. And um, it just was never going off. I just, I was watching other people who I knew came after we did and they were getting seated. And so finally I went up there and I said, um, excuse me, when are we gonna be seated? And without even looking down at her little magic tablet, she just looked at me and she went, when it's your turn. That was a very unsatisfying answer. Um, I was looking for a little something more concrete and we know what it's like to have somebody just tell us in a little while, in a just a little while. Whenever we are kind of like given something unsatisfactory like that, it's like our hands get ripped off the steering wheel of control and it's like um, you're, you're kind of vulnerable. You're, you're sort of helpless in this situation. And so here's what we know that 
that is true though historically because of that first Christmas and because as we were led so well in communion, that communion also points to another coming between that first coming and the next coming. There's the season that we live in. And for a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, we are people who are hopelessly hopeful. We are people of hope. We are in an ongoing way, people that are irresistibly hopeful people. That is a hallmark of the people of God. And so when we come to the first candle that we light in Advent, it's the candle of hope that when it seems like there's the darkness of never-ending circumstances and the question of when, when are we going to, when will it happen, when will things be made right, when will there be no more poverty and violence and injustice and all the things that we see in the world and that we're, we're, we're seeking to change and want to see be different, and we ask the question when, in the middle of this in-between time, we are people of hope. And for a believer, our hope is rooted in a person. It's rooted in the person of Jesus Christ who was raised from the dead. And so hope is the person or the thing on which your expectations for the future are centered. So the very things that I have placed my confidence in about the future, that's my place of hope. And so for a follower of Jesus Christ, we are always looking forward to something with hope, with, with confident expectation that there is something yet still to happen. There's still something different. There's something better yet to come. So we live in this in-between time with joyful anticipation of an ultimate future, of a different future. And hope becomes a defiance against the darkness. Hope brings a new perspective for us every day and it reinterprets our circumstances. And so we're renewed in hope in the Advent season. We sing songs like this, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie above thy deep and dreamless sleep. The silent star goes by, we know the song. Now it says, yet in the dark street shineth the everlasting light, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. That this juxtaposition of fear and yet hope, the tension of very real darkness, yet the anticipation of a brighter light that's dawning and coming. Um, oh, holy night, we get these words, a thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. That in the weariness, the exhaustion, the fatigue, the struggle, there's the rejoicing of hope. Because without hope, we become vulnerable to, dis to despair. And despair is something unique, but not unfamiliar to a lot of people's lives, but despair is when pain is without purpose and hope is lost. So despair is you're choosing to believe and act as if the future is just going to get even worse, more so than even the present. And so for a believer in Jesus Christ, we have foundational hope because we know there is still something yet that's coming even as we experience the presence and the goodness of God in the moment. I'm gonna ask you to turn in your Bible to Lamentations 3.21. I'm so thankful for Pastor Brad's teaching gift. He's very smart, very intellectually capable, well-studied, a scholar. So I'm gonna go for some low-hanging fruit today. I'll leave the heavy lifting for him. And I wanna give a, what is a, I think a really just strong devotional thought out of, a section of scripture that is maybe not 
unfamiliar to many of us, um, may, maybe is very loved even and familiar, but in Lamentations chapter three, verses 21, Lamentations really simply means a collection of laments. And to lament is to have a passionate expression of grief and sorrow. And we could spend some time talking about what lamenting is and why it's even significantly even a part of a believer's life. And there's a whole book in the Bible devoted to it. But someone once called the book of Lamentations the book of pain, a poem of pain, because Lamentations really is five poems in a row. Um, the first two and the last two are acrostics. And so that means they start out with the letter of the Hebrew alphabet, each line does, and goes from there. So in our, if we used our alphabet, it'd be like A. The first verse would be A, and then a word that would start. So acne, you know, something really bad. Or, and it would just kind of spell it out. The middle, book, the middle um, chapter, chapter three, is um, a triple acrostic. So that means there's three per um, line. And so it's, it's really... Um, triple the volume, but in the center of this book of lament is this little ray of hope that breaks through. Because the book of Lamentations, many people feel like it was written and could say with confidence that Jeremiah the prophet wrote the book of Lamentations, and he's called the weeping prophet. It's because he spent 40 years of ministry weeping over the sins of Jerusalem, over the sins of Israel, and we really don't have any record of anybody coming to faith in God or returning back to God, turning from idolatry under his ministry. So for 40 years, he's got an unpopular message. He's telling him this, judgment is coming, judgment is coming. And they don't like that message, so they throw him in a pit. He spends a big chunk of his time in a, in a dungeon up to his armpits in mud. And so for almost 40 long, painful years, he's preaching, repent, O Jerusalem, or sudden judgment and destruction will come upon you. And then the Babylonians come and they destroy the city. They destroy the temple. They tear down the walls. Jeremiah watches this violent deportation of so many of his friends and colleagues, people, um, citizens of the country are hauled off. And, and now Jeremiah is walking amongst the ru ruins and rubble of the city. And he goes outside the city up the hill, looking over the ruins and he weeps and he cries and he writes. And what we have written is the book of Lamentations as he looks over the city. And this was a dark day in the history of Israel. And Lamentations reflects the devastation of that moment. But yet in verse 19 of chapter three, right in the center of all this pain, this questioning, this evoking of, of sorrow before God, this lamenting, he says these words, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall, I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Now listen to this. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions or his mercies never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So I say to myself, the Lord is my portion Therefore, I will wait for him. It's interesting in verse 21, he says, yet I call this to mind and therefore I have hope. And in verse 24, it says, 
Um, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The New King James and other translations translate it this way. They says, therefore I will hope in him because it's the exact same word that's used in both verses. One is translated and therefore I have hope and the other is translated and I will wait for him. Waiting and hope are synonymous oftentimes because it's in this interim, it's this tension of the now and not yet. I'm waiting, I'm expectant and I'm fueled by hope. So he does two things to nourish hope in his heart. I call this to mind and I say to myself. Two, two things he does that builds hope. Um, so this bright spot in the book, even in the midst of the devastation, in the midst of the justice, injustice and the violence, um, even in the justice of God's judgment against sin that he had pronounced over Israel, he sees cause to be aware of the mercy of God in the midst of that. Because he says, God, if it wasn't for your mercy, we wouldn't even be alive at all. There would be not even a remnant left. There would be no hope for a future if it wasn't for your great mercy. So how did he cultivate hope? And this is where I want to get really practical and just encourage you today. The first thing is, he said, I call this to mind. By saying that, he's saying, this isn't naturally something that's in my thoughts. I have to require of myself to put it there. It's like my emotions don't have brains. <laughs> my emotions can't think for themselves. My emotions don't have faith. So I have to step in and I have to think about something intentionally because I never feel my way to faith. I have to, with understanding, put my faith in. I have to believe in something. And so I call this to mind that a lot of times we say we walk by faith faith and not by sight. And we get that, but we walk by faith and not by feelings. And it's so easy in circumstances like ours to be driven by feelings. And we're told that what we think about affects us physically. It affects us emotionally. And so a lot of times it's easy to begin to think that the most reliable indicator of what is true in my life is what I feel. And that's not the case for a follower of Jesus. I feel like God's forgotten me. I feel like God's far from me. So that must be true because I feel that way. Jeremiah is saying, I feel like this, God. It seems to be, but I call this to mind and I have hope. I remember, I, I, I recall something. I, I require of myself to think about something that's true that is therefore the basis of hope in my life. And so Jeremiah is showing us that biblical hope doesn't come from circumstance, it comes for circumstances. It's based on what we know to be true despite the circumstances all around me. And so if we easily dismiss that as just, well, that's just positive thinking, the scripture actually gives us biblical commands to act commands to actively think about what's life-giving. In Philippians chapter four, verse eight, it says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or worthy of praise, think about such things. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, if anything is bad, if anything's corrupt, if anything's miserable, if it's hopeless or futile, think on those things. It's like, where, where have you set your mind? Because biblical meditation and understanding of truth isn't trying to get bad thoughts out. It's about trying to get the truth in. I was reading a study recently where they took two groups of people and they had one group keep what they called for 10 weeks an irritation journal. 
And that's like they asked them to log every time they were irritated, write it down. Some people do that. They just keep an irritation journal up here. They just remember every little thing and they rehearse it over and over. And some people we know have irritation journals. It's called Facebook. And they uh, decide that they're going to keep track of everything that irritates them, assuming people want to know. But we don't. We really don't want to know. Then there's another group that they were told to keep a Thanksgiving journal and that they were to write everything that they were grateful for, thankful for, for 10 weeks. And so it was a surprising result for the researchers because they thought there might be some difference at the end as they compared the mental states, the relational quality of the different groups, the, the two different groups. But they found that the grateful people had increased energy levels, slept better, were less depressed, physically healthier, emotionally healthier. Um, so way beyond the irritation journal people. It was shocking, the, the difference, way beyond what they expected. But here's what they concluded. They concluded that both of those things are learned, that, that people who practice irritation became more irritable, as if we need a study to tell us that. Like the more you find to be critical of and criticize, the more criticizing and critical you'll be. But the more you find to be grateful for, the more grateful you'll be. What they said is what people start off doing intentionally, they end up doing unintentionally. It just becomes who I am. And so Jeremiah is saying this, I'm going to call to mind. I'm going to look for this. Not the evidence that God's not among us, but I'm going to look for the evidence of God among us. So three things, he says, this is what I'm going to call to mind. First of all, the steadfast love of God. I'm going to call God's love to mind. His love is rooted in God's will. It's steadfast. It never gives up. Um, he refuses to quit. He said he would love us, and he will. Because of the Lord's great love, verse 22, we are not consumed. What Jeremiah is saying is God's going to stick by his people. God will never say these words to you. I don't love you anymore. I mean, could you think, think of anything more devastating to hear than that from somebody? They look at you and say, I don't love you anymore. Those words break hearts. They shatter dreams. They destroy relationships when you love me, but now you don't love me anymore. And Jeremiah was saying, we were idolatrous. We were unwilling to repent. And yet, God, you still love us. Your love never stops. I'm going to call this to mind. There's a God who loves me. There's a God who does not stop loving me. Despair may blind me to his love, but his love doesn't go away just because I don't feel it per se. And so when I call those things to mind, the invisible is made visible once again in me. So what's the basis for God's love. How do we know he keeps loving us? He answers it next by saying his mercies never fail. So the second thing he calls to mind is his mercies that are new every morning or his compassions. This is the emotional side of love, his love and actions. He keeps expressing his compassion towards me that he said he would love me. He's steadfast in his love and he's going to be committed because he said he would, but he's merciful. He wants to love me. And mercy is love in action. 
It's God acting on the basis of his covenant. And Jeremiah is saying, it's new every morning. And that word new isn't just a new version of the same. It's not like I had eggs this morning and tomorrow I'll get up and I had eggs again. It's God saying, eggs today, and then you wake up tomorrow and it's waffles. It's like, it's new and it's different. It's like, it's new, but it's even beyond what you thought. It's different as well. So what do you say to yourself in the morning? Yeah, I bet God's going to serve leftovers again. No, I wake up in the morning, they're new today. And I'm going to look for the evidence of God's compassions, his mercies to me. If God's loyal love and compassion are new every morning, I have the right to claim them daily. I have the right to look for them at the start of every new day. And just as the sun rises with certainty, um, how much truer is the promise that God's loyal love and compassions are going to be new to me? I'm going to wake up tomorrow and anticipate the expressions of God's love and kindness and mercy to me. And then he says, I'm going to call to mind God's faithfulness, God's utter dependability, He'll do what he said he would do, and he will be who he said he will be. God, you are faithful. God made a promise to Abraham that he would have a people. God made a promise to Moses that he would bring that people into a land. God made a promise to David that a king would come and sit upon his throne forever, that God made a promise to the prophets that a people would return from exile, and God was faithful to those promises. They didn't know that there would be a king that would come named Cyrus who would one day let all the people return again and they'd rebuild the city and the temple and the walls and become a people again. In the same way, we look to the faithfulness of God, the great hope of the church. Our great hope is we anticipate the faithfulness of Jesus to his promise that I will come again. There's the preparation now for the advent of the king who will return once again Great is his faithfulness. What does that mean? It means even when you can't see it, he's working. Even when you can't feel it, he's working. It means he's never going to stop, never going to stop working. Go ahead and sing with me. That's, that's really what it means. Um, I will recall this to mind. The steadfast love of God never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. He's faithful. And then I'll say to myself, and I'll finish with this, Verse 24, I'll say to myself, so I'm going to think these things, but I'm going to speak. I'm going to say, I'm going to preach to myself. And he says, the Lord is my portion. I'll wait for him or I will then hope in him. The Lord is my portion. What is he saying? He's saying, God, you're enough for me. The word portion is an interesting word because it's the same word that's used throughout Israel's history to describe the land of promise. God was going to give them a land and divide that land into portions for each tribe and then each family within the tribe. And this land is my portion. And now my land has been taken from me. I don't, I don't have my home anymore. But yet, God, I, I still have a home because you're my home. You're my you're my portion. You're the one who sustains me. You're the one who keeps me going. It's in you that I feel secure. It's, it's in you where I matter. It's in you where I'm loved and valued. Psalm 90, Moses wrote the psalm that said, Lord, throughout all the generations, you have been our home. What he was saying is that we've always had a dwelling place, even when we were enslaved in Egypt, even when we were wandering in the wilderness, we really had a home. 
Even though the land is being stripped from us here, you're our home. Because home is not just a place. Home is a people. It's who you're with. And God, you've not forsaken us. God, your righteous judgments have come against our sin, but we are not consumed. You're our portion. Psalm 73 says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. That Psalm, he wrote in the context, those words of looking at the world around him and seeing the wealth of the wicked and the prosperity of the unrighteous, those who the enemies of God seem to have everything going for them. But in his renewed perspective of putting his eyes back on the covenant keeping God that he worships and serves, he said these words, God, even when I'm weak, you're my strength and you're my portion forever. So I will wait for you. I'll be renewed in hope in you because you're enough for me. Even though I've lost this, I've not lost you. I'll wait. I'll keep waiting. The longer you wait, the easier it is to maybe lose hope. I don't like waiting. Sometimes I'm shocked at how impatient I am. Have you ever gone to Disney World and thought, I'm paying a lot of money to wait, just waiting? Um, But to wait on the Lord is not just marking time. To wait on the Lord is to experience the developing work of the Spirit within us, to experience a strength that lifts us and that we soar. Verse 25 of Lamentations 3 says, the Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him, so it's good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It's good to be renewed in hope. Hebrews 10, 37, for in a little while, he who is coming will come and he will not delay. Just in that first Christmas, there were those who waited in confident expectation that God would fulfill his promises and light broke into the darkness. The cold, the never-ending seeming darkness came to an end. The light came and it became life to us. We're still living in the fullness of that first coming, the salvation that was brought to us, that light that transforms and changes us. And we get to be that light in the midst of a dark world. And we don't lose hope because in the midst of what looks like even the ruins of culture and all the other things around us, we are irresistibly hopeful people because we live with our heads lifted up anticipation of the blessed hope, the coming again of our King and his enduring kingdom. So the kingdom's breaking in. It's manifesting all around us. Wherever Jesus is enthroned and worshiped as king. And so we get to do that in our own hearts, in our own homes, right where you're at. And I'm gonna ask you to pray with me. And maybe you would even lift your hands and you would say, Jesus, in this place, in my own heart, in this very room, in this house, this apartment, amongst my family, with my roommates, wherever I'm at, Jesus, I want to enthrone you as king in my praises. I magnify you. I I worship you. I say the things that are true about you. God, that you are good and that you're loving and just in all your ways. God, that you have been faithful to every generation. God, you are 
new in your mercies. Your compassions are fresh and always available to us. You're our portion. You're enough. Even when my heart and my flesh seem to fail, God, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And I lift my head in anticipation of the glory yet to be revealed with confidence of a day that will surely come. And until that day, Jesus, may we be broadcasters of your hope. May we be missionaries and ambassadors of your hope. May others be drawn to the light, the revelation of who you are in our midst. Shine brightly in this place, in this people. Thank you for this place, God, for decades that has been a city set on a hill. Continue to let this lamp stand, stand firmly in place, and may the light be broadcast throughout the city and county and state and region and around the world for the glory and the praise of your name. Amen.